So let's talk about um, community rank and why it's important. Uh, let me begin just by, first of all, saying uh, that Benedictines have been around a long time, and uh, lots and lots of traditions grow up in a religious order when, when you've been around for 1,500 years. Benedictines are interesting in that we have two different mottos. Does anybody know what the two different mottos are of Benedictines? Ora et labora, work and pray, yeah. And the other one is pox, very simple one. Peace, peace, pox. Uh, that's the older one. Ora et labora is a 19th century. It was with the revival of Benedictinism in the 19th century. And uh, uh, it, it fits, you know. The 19th century was the time when we became more and more aware of the importance of work. Um, and... Uh, but Pax is the older one. Peace. Peace. St. Benedict says several times in his rule that he wants the brothers to be at peace. And therefore, he's against anything that disturbs this peace. The, his main uh, concern is murmuring. right? So uh, a, a spirit of criticism in the monastery, complaining about uh, clothes that don't, that don't have the right color, food that's not good. Decisions the abbot makes that I don't agree with. Uh, somebody gets more than I got. All those things. Benedict is warning us constantly not to murmur. And it's interesting. We begin every day with Psalm 94, uh, which uh, is tells the story of the Israelites murmuring in the desert and warns us not to do it. You know? uh, so uh, Benedict is very concerned. That's his principal worry is that brothers will murmur. However, we see also... In the, the beginning of this chapter 63, he says the abbot is not to disturb the flock entrusted to him. And uh, he could do, do this uh, by making arbitrary decisions about who gets to rank higher than another brother. Okay, So uh, part of the peace of the community has to do with everybody knowing his place and accepting it. And doing so again with a joyful heart. And this is actually not so easy for us to get. Um, and in a lot of ways, when we, if you read, read the master's idea on community rank, uh, it, I, I was kind of surprised when I started teaching in uh, formation. Some brothers read the rule of the master, and they, they like him better than Benedict at first. Um, and in, in some ways, I'll talk about this. In some ways, his idea of community rank is closer to sort of what is normal in our society, which is sort of everybody starts at the same level, and it's a kind of meritocracy. And if you work hard, you get favored, right? Uh, Benedict, uh, yes and no. Benedict uh, has a lot of nuance in his chapter, and, and fewer words, <laughs> if I may say so. Um, how many of you have read the Rule of the Master? Anybody here read the Rule of the Master? Susan has. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and how many of you had a chance to read the chapter from the Rule that I sent around? The chapter from the Rule of the Master. A few of you did. Okay. Um, it, it's not super important, but it's it's very instructive. You see, keep in mind that the first half of Saint Benedict's Rule, he copies almost word for word from the Master but heavily edits him in terms of taking things out, maybe adding an explanatory word here or there. The second half of the rule becomes more and more Benedict's own creation. There are no parallels in the master or any other literature we're aware of from the time. So Benedict had a lot of respect for the master, but at the same time, he, he recognized that the rule of the master doesn't work. And what I usually tell brothers is, I, I can't imagine the, the master's rule, uh, a community surviving more than one generation <laughs> I think the first abatial election would be a disaster. Um, and, and after that, it would be just a matter of time before they fold. On the other hand, Benedictine communities last for a thousand years. <laughs> this happens. There, there are, there are uh, dozens of communities that have actually persevered for more than nine centuries <laughs> using the Benedictine rule. So there's something about what Benedict teaches that works. And I want to explore that with you. What is peace? I mean, when we talk about peace, um, I have a, a, an aunt and uncle who are very beloved. Uh, I, I grew up going and visiting them every summer, spending weeks with them in the Twin Cities. 
And they were really flower children. <laughs> okay. uh, we, we tie-dyed shirts together, and uh, we went for bike hikes and things like this, and uh, watched The Hobbit, and um, all this kind of stuff. And it was great. I had a great time. Peace in that milieu <laughs> means nobody bothers me, right? I mean, it's, I, I get to enjoy myself. Uh, it's, fairly, it's a fairly passive kind of construction. It's not something we have to work at. It's just if people sort of chill out and leave me alone, <laughs> I'll have peace. This is not the classical idea of peace in the Christian tradition. <laughs> Let's say that. St. Saint, uh, Augustine gives the classical definition of peace. Does anybody know what St. Augustine's definition of peace is? This is from the City of God. St. Augustine says, peace is the tranquility of order. Okay? So when things are in proper order and all are tranquil within that order, we have peace. So every person, everything has its proper place, the place intended for it by God. That, that would be the idea. Uh, now, the danger of this definition. <laughs> I think this definition is true. But being a 20th century, 21st century American, I have my, my suspicions about you know, why authority might choose this as a model of peace, right? Yeah, you just have to keep your place. Don't bother me. <laughs> right? um, how do we feel about order? When, when someone says, you know, the tranquility of order, does the idea of order make us feel warm and, and strong inside? Or, or does it, do we feel like, well, yeah, your order, but what about the order that I might like? <laughs> how, do, how do we feel about order? Be interested to know. It's regimented. Yeah. yeah. And regimented by who? Yeah. <laughs> who institutes top it? Down. Who tells us? Yes, top down. Very good. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. Anybody else? Feelings about order? Yes, Susan. I don't mind it because it allows for a certain calm that allows you to deal with exceptions that come into yeah. your lives. And the exceptions are things that are often um, more difficult to deal with. So if I have a little bit of calm and I have to Yeah. Here's a here's a non top down idea of order which we all I think appreciate. You know, um, the when the CTA buses run on time, there is an order to them, and so we know if I go and stand at Archer and Loomis, the the bus the Archer bus will come after about five minutes, and that's because we we want to order our lives as Chicagoans in, in a way that everybody benefits, right? So this is order, we often take order for granted, but it's something that does make our lives a lot easier. If the CTA decided that the buses and trains are going to run whenever the drivers feel like driving the route. <laughs> it's because we don't want to repress anybody with sort of, you know, too much uh, top-down order. Uh, this wouldn't work very well. Right? We'd all be on, on foot or we'd all be driving cars. Yeah, Susan. The driver's going to tell you that, um, that he was stuck up by a train over on Austin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or the, 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 the Archer bus driver might pick you up on time to say, I'm not going downtown this time. I'm going out to the airport. Is that all right? <laughs> so order is something, as Susan says, oftentimes we don't notice the order that's in our life because we take it for granted. But it's the, it is the kind of thing that, because we can take it for granted, means we can trust that things will work most of the time, right? So, so in this sense, order is a really good thing. Other feelings about order? Yes, sorry. I People were all lined up in this shelter before the train came, and then when the train came, there was sort of a moment of chaos where who's going to be first in line? Uh-huh. And the conductor opened a door that people didn't expect, and it, it threw the order mm. on it. Out of whack. Yeah. But when a uniform person appeared, then there was order. Interesting, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think this is one of the things. Order does imply some kind of authority. It doesn't, again, necessarily have to be some kind of repressive authority, but someone who, who can speak for the group in some way and give some, and order things for us. Uh, uh, you reminded me of one other thing I, I wanted to say about this before we go to St. Benedict's Rule. Um, but now it's gone out of my head. Uh, 
Yeah, so, oh, I know. I think what we often imagine is opposed to order or is better than order is, again, sort of my personal feelings or my personal expressiveness. But really, the opposite of order is what? Disorder. Yeah, chaos. <laughs> okay? And in, in chaotic situations, the only people who really do well are those who are very powerful. And so disorder is always to the disadvantage of the disadvantaged. And so order, again, is a, is a way of helping those who have fewer resources to be able to flourish. Okay, so it's, it's an act of charity, really, to create an order in which each person finds his or her own place. Um, so, uh, now, this doesn't mean, again, I think one of the fears we have about order in, from our experience in the United States is, as I said, we often like to tell ourselves that we live in a kind of meritocracy, so that we give everybody a, a level playing field and then persons are free to really uh, uh, blossom and do really well in life and so on. Actually, there's a journalist named Christopher Hayes who wrote a book a few years ago about this, and he said, while I have benefited greatly from this kind of meritocracy approach, he's a graduate of Harvard or some Ivy League school, he said, uh, in fact, if you look at it, it doesn't really work because it favors the people who are connected to a kind of hidden authority that orders things <laughs> rather than actually having a level playing field. Uh, so there's something to the idea of a meritocracy, and we see again in St. Benedict's rule, he doesn't rule out the possibility that some brothers will merit advancement in rank. Okay, But he warns the abbot, be very, very careful about this. Don't do it too often. Don't disturb the community. Don't play favorites. You're going to have to answer for it to God. <laughs> okay. You'll notice that St. Benedict, almost every time he mentions the abbot, reminds the abbot that he has to answer for all of his decisions to God. The master does not <laughs> say that about the abbot. So this is an important thing to keep in mind. Um, I, this is <laughs> something I have to wrestle with because um, I remember... Asking uh, Abbot Anselm, our Abbot Visitor, uh, how he reads this passage where St. Benedict says that uh, the Abbot will have to answer for the obedience of his disciples. And Abbot Anselm's only response was a sigh and rolling his eyes, <laughs> like, oh no, <laughs> we, we superiors, this will be difficult for us uh, because we'll have to answer for our, our brothers. Um, let me say a little bit more about disorder. Uh, we you know, our, we don't have a coherent philosophy in the United States. We don't, uh, we have all kinds of competing ideas. This in itself is a kind of incoherence or disorder. Our assumption is that uh, there's a kind of optimistic assumption based in a kind of naturalistic, materialistic understanding of evolution. So evolutionary biologists say, well, random molecules crashed into each other and we got dogs, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, because of this, there's this feeling like, well, all we have to do is just kind of let everything be and uh, the, the excellence will just appear out of nowhere. Um, the difficulty with this approach, there are many, many difficulties. First of all, it's a materialistic approach, and so it doesn't really give us some idea that maybe God has a plan for these random molecules, <laughs> that they're not random after all in some way. But let me offer some... some uh, tougher objections to this. In a democracy where every, you know, it's one man, one woman, one vote. Everybody, level playing field. Everybody should get the same starting point. That's, that's the ideal. In such a world as this, bad news. Everybody's replaceable. Nobody occupies a unique place. When you're gone, somebody else just steps in and it doesn't require any particular expertise to take your place. You just have to be a person, <laughs> you know, uh, an eligible voter, not a felon, I guess. Um, but uh, this is a, a difficulty with democracy, is that the, what makes individuals unique, we try to flatten out. Um, if you've ever read a short story by uh, Kurt Vonnegut called uh, Harrison Bergeron, he deals with this. Uh, and... Uh, this is sometime in the future, not too much in the future at this point. He wrote the story back in the 60s. Um, 
And uh, in the United States, there's a handicapper general, and that means that anybody who has special talents is given handicaps so that everybody's really equal. And so if you watch the ballet, the, the ballerinas have weights tied around their ankles. And, and, uh, uh, but Paris and Bergeron is so awesome that he, he defeats the handicapper general, at least for a while. Uh, but uh, Vonnegut was getting at this idea that our ideal in a democracy is that nobody's special. Um, and this is actually different than the Christian view, which is that God intended each one of you for a specific mission in life. He, he created each of you. He, he knew you before you were born and had an intention for you. Each, each one of us then is unique in God's eyes and has a particular place. Okay? Now, as strange as it appears, in Benedict's rule, he honors this more uh, by giving each brother a particular place in community life. Uh, the other difficulty with a meritocracy and the idea that I can advance by performing really well is that life becomes competitive. Uh, the master actually wants this. If you've read his chapter on this, he says he wants the brothers to be competing to show that they're doing better than the other brothers. And the abbot's going to watch and sort of preside over this and see who's, you know, who's excelling in virtue. Um, and... Uh, this is dangerous, actually. St. Benedict only mentions competition once in his rule, as to say that the brothers should sort of compete with each other to get to vigils first, but with all due decorum. It says that in an orderly way. You know, we should encourage one another and try to be first to the office, but, but not with any buffoonery. Or, or, uh, and we should, the other thing is we should encourage one another. <laughs> um, so Benedict is always looking at the relationships between the brothers. And what does it mean, you know, if, let's say, uh, Brother Gabriel uh, and um, one of the other brothers are competing with each other to impress me? <laughs> what do you think their relationship is going to be like? Not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, so you, you can kind of see the master's idea here, however well intended, is going to have this effect that brothers are going to be watching each other. And this, this happens. It's just natural. Uh, especially, I think, men's and women's communities are different. Um, I, I can't say for certain that men are more competitive. We, we compete over different sorts of things. Um, one of the things I've noticed, this is very interesting. Uh, so myself, Brother Brendan, Brother Edward, Brother Ignatius, Brother Augustine, all of us had brothers and sisters growing up. Starting with uh, Brother Ezekiel, Brother Timothy, Brother Joseph, they all have only brothers. <laughs> this is very interesting to me because uh, I, I, my impression is that they grew up in a very competitive environment. I don't have any brothers. I don't have any natural brothers. I have three sisters and two stepbrothers. And um, I, I didn't have to compete with my sisters. What was there to compete about? I was the oldest. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, sometimes my sisters would compete with me because I was the oldest, but I, I, I was the only boy, I was the oldest. I, I, they couldn't take away that position from me. And so it was very easy for me. I didn't have to compete for anything. Uh, sometimes I get a little sore because my youngest sister, of course, got perks that I didn't get as the oldest. But, you know, everybody's different. So, um, But this idea of competition is a breeding ground for rivalry and envy, Right? And the master actually wants brothers to be sort of competing to be the next abbot. It's campaigning. I mean, this, this is what will happen eventually. Is brothers will campaign. Uh, look at how virtuous I am. And uh, the abbot is going to choose the next brother. That's the other thing that uh, doesn't really work. And it's interesting that the master would have made this mistake because uh, he's very well versed in the literature from the Egyptian desert, but there's a very... Uh, sad story in the, the history of the Pacomian monasteries uh, from the Upper Nile, south, the southern part of Egypt. Pacomius founded these huge monasteries, and he did what the master suggested. He picked out his heir apparent before he died. Uh, but then he rallied, and he, he, he came back and was okay and was out of it for a couple more years. And this made life very, very difficult for the monk he had appointed to be his successor, and eventually he had to 
more or less put him out of the monastery as a disciplinary measure, and eventually somebody else succeeded Pacomius as abbot. So this idea that the abbot should sort of choose the most worthy successor, again, in practice doesn't actually work. St. Benedict replaces this with a vote of all, all of the brothers. Um, and of course, it's possible to campaign under those circumstances, but it's also harder to sort of fool people because you live with them. <laughs> but the abbot um, isn't under the sorts of, he's not a part of this, and so his judgment on these matters is going to be problematic, I think. So what is Benedict's solution? How does he organize his community? There are three principles he uses for organizing the rank of the brothers. Do you, do you see what they are right at the beginning of this chapter? Date of entry, virtue of their lives, decision of the abbot. Really, those last two are related to each other. But entry, date of entry is the most important. If you've spent any time around the monastery, you know that we process all over the place. And if you, if you pay attention, you'll notice we're always in the same order. The way we sit in choir, the way we walk in procession, the only change is if there are brothers who have a ministerial role in the liturgy, they might process in a different place. So the, the thoroughfare will go first. But if he's not the thoroughfare, he just goes back into his place in choir. We had a, a visiting monk from uh, Colin, Alabama with us this past week. And uh, what's one of the first things you ask a visiting monk? What's your date of entry? Because we have to put him in line somewhere. <laughs> Where's he going to sit in choir? Right? And where did he sit? Right next to you. Right next to you. Between me and Right, because he made his vows just after you did, or just before you did, I mean. So he's just, just senior to you, and he's, he's junior to Timothy, so he's right between the two of you. <laughs> so uh, when, you, when I go to visit another monastery, well, I'm a, a prior, so I, I always get preferment. But uh, before that, if I were visiting, um, when I studied at St. John's, for instance, we had lots and lots of visiting monks. And before Vespers on Saturday, we're all lined up, and St. John's in those days had 200 monks plus visiting monks. So Vespers, a lot of the monks were out on weekends doing mission and so on. But oftentimes for, for Stasio, we had 170, 180 monks, 25 of whom were visiting. <laughs> and so we're all lined up, and you have uh, monks sort of gauging by age and so on, where they should go and ask, when, when did you make vows? 86. Oh, okay. I'm right here. Okay. And get in line. And again, what this looks like it's fussy to those who haven't experienced it. But the effect is, again, each brother has his place. Nobody else can take that place. You know? uh, and it defines his relationship with everybody else. The people in front of me are my seniors. The people behind me are my juniors. I respect these. I love these. Right? Uh, when, I, when a senior comes into the room, I stand up for him. Right? When I come into a room, I expect the juniors to stand up for me. Uh, I, I, I use different titles depending on who's senior to me or not. Right? Uh, so I know how to act right away toward each person in the community. It's scripted for me. Okay? I don't have to sort of think, um, you know, is this guy mad at me today? Uh, you know, uh, how, do, how am I supposed to feel about this guy? No, you just say, hi, Father, <laughs> or whatever it is. Uh, whatever is given by the rank that you have. And, and this is most of the time by date of entry. Then the abbot can uh, move brothers up in rank or demote them, but he says for specific reasons. <laughs> okay, And what he means by this, I think, are the things that he details in the rule, which are when brothers actually fall afoul of the rule in some way. They can be demoted for a time. Uh, and, uh, but other brothers could be advanced, say, to be sub-prior or to be a priest. Um, but it has to be by the merit of their lives and by their, their doctrine that they actually have some teaching. Uh, but I think Benedict intends this to be pretty rare. But really what we want is, because in a way, if we think about it for a moment, when... Who makes the decision about date of entry? Who's deciding the community rank in that case? Take a broad, Brother Gabriel's grinning, so I might, he might help us if, 
It's not so much the abbot, because the abbot can't really control who comes and asks to enter so much. What's that? No, the prior wouldn't make that decision either. Yeah. The individual, yeah. And what's the individual doing under those circumstances? Who's he trying to obey? Uh, not, not the abbot so much. I'm thinking more of God. It's actually God's providence. You know, we don't know who God is going to send to the monastery. Or when they're going to come. Or when they're going to be ready to enter. Um, that's really worked out with the brother and in, in prayer and with the community. But, you know, we wouldn't, say, delay somebody so that he would have a rank lower than somebody else. You, you, a person enters when he's ready. And there are usually objective signs when somebody's ready. You know, they, they, they can quit their job. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, what, I mean, the, the debt's not a problem. I mean, they're sort of typical things. What were the hurdles you had to clear before you entered? Can you remember? You have to be able to get, you can't have a job, you know, at that point. For me, it was more disposition. It was more just letting go yeah. of my life. Yeah, are you ready yet? This is, this is for me. It's a really dive into the deep end, honestly. It was more, uh, I think for modern persons, especially, you know, at least most young people I've spoken to, the difficulty is just making the decision, choosing a place. Mm-hmm. I think because nowadays we're given options for everything, you know, for colleges, for instance, you have to make sure that everything is exactly in its, uh, you have all your ducks in a row before you make your decision, but what you end up doing is just complicating the, the issue further. And for me, it was, I have to trust that this is God's will, that this is where he wants me, and if he doesn't want me, well, let me know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that act of faith, you know, so God then takes the lead. Basically, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. So, the date of entry is the date you walk into the monastery, not the date you take your first vows. It is normally Benedict would say it's the date you enter, but normally we go by first vows. That's that's typically um, uh, because different communities have different novitiate lengths and so on. Um, and then that, then it's a very objective thing that we share across the board, you know. So, but it, it's the same kind of. It's, it's um, and, and also the other thing to keep in mind is that a novitiate can't is not canonically you're not allowed to have a novitiate go past two years. So you know this is a sign that the brother really is called by God to this life and he's allowed to make vows. You can't prolong the novitiate too long. Um, so simple vows you can prolong up to nine years. <laughs> but the novitiate no. So so in that way I think first vows is a, is a good clear objective sign. St. Benedict didn't have first vows, you know, he only had some vows after one year. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I mean, we had this happen with Father Michael, too, when he was here. I have to think again. Okay, he's he's junior to Father Edward, but senior to Brother Ignatius. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Southwest uh, Bird <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if you remember, before uh-huh. they started giving you letter numbers, it was just letters, and it was chaos. It and was. People were trampling and shoving and whatever. The A group, that was the big thing, and now you have your place. Great example, yeah. Because I just flew southwest last week, and I was musing on that very thing. It's like, I've got B-18. So I, 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 so what have you got? You got, oh, B-17. Great, okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, before it was, what, just three boarding groups, and everybody... <laughs> uh, so they realize that giving each person a place actually leads to harmony. It probably goes faster, I think. Yeah, yeah. good, great, great example. Um, you know, can I just think sure. of another example? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I please. Going to the movie theater when I was little, you just walk in and sit anywhere now, and they look at your ticket, mm-hmm. and they walk into the aisle. Mm-hmm. So the numbers punched out on the ticket. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those, those things, uh, yeah, it, it, for whatever reason, we, we tend to feel that they can be confining. But in practice, again, I think the, the experience is that knowing this is my place and I don't have to fight with other people over it. It's a huge advantage. <laughs> I think they might have yeah. done that because yeah. maybe they were like, this fight's for seats during a full house or yeah. something. Yeah. 
So they just figured, you know, let's just number the seats mm -hmm. for when we sell out. Everybody has a seat. Yeah. So they're going, you know, the going up. Yeah. So. So as I said, Benedict actually has a kind of a mix, but the primary thing is date of entry. And as I said, that in addition just to defining where, where one processes, uh, this also defines one's relationships to each brother in the community. So uh, beginning in, in verse 10, Benedict writes, the younger monks then must respect their seniors. Actually, uh, honor would be another possible translation there for the, the Latin. And the seniors must love their juniors. I mean, that's, that's, very, that's very nice. Notice, if, if you do read the master's chapter, the master says nothing about the brothers' relationship to each other. It's only their relationship to the abbot. And um, uh, this, again, in my experience, does not make for harmony. I know... Um, one of the things we go back and forth on when we have chapter meetings, when all the senior professed members of the community meet to make a big decision of some kind, um, the abbot makes the decision, or in our case, the prior makes the decision after hearing everybody. The temptation for the brothers is to sort of talk to me and, and, and try to persuade me rather than what we should be doing is trying to discern because uh, Benedict actually says the younger brother often has the better idea. So we have to listen. Each of us has to listen to everybody. And then sometimes we need to talk to each other and say, can you clarify? Well, you said we should do this. Well, what do you mean? Do, have you thought about the, the danger of this decision bringing up this consequence that you haven't thought of? And then it gives the brothers a chance to talk to each other. Uh, rather than just, again, sort of campaigning to persuade the guy who's got the levers of power, <laughs> but really to let the Holy Spirit speak through the community. But this requires brothers to have relationships with each other and not just with the abbot. And so Benedict wants the brothers to have clear relationships with one another, scripted. This is, I think, one of the hardest things about this. When they address one another, verse 11, no one should be allowed to do, do so simply by name. Rather, the seniors call the younger monks brother, and the younger monks call their seniors nonus, which is translated as venerable father. I don't know any communities that do this. Uh, there are some communities for whom senior monks are called father even if they're not priests. We have tended, for various reasons in recent years, to address the priests as father and the brothers as brother or dom. I personally like the title dom. Uh, Dom is short for, for Dominus, and, uh, which is, means Lord. And this is a traditional title for monks in solemn vows. So Brother Gabriel's not Dom yet. He, he's Brother Gabriel. But, for instance, Brother Timothy, who just made solemn vows, uh, when I write him notes, I refer to him as Dom Timothy because he's in solemn vows. So the distinction really has to do with when one makes solemn vows rather than the priesthood. So we say we could also say Dom Edward rather than Father Edward to make a distinction between clerics and, and lay brothers. Um, but in any case, these are scripted. And uh, at some point in, in one of my philosophical online discussions, I will talk to you about uh, the sociologist Mary Douglas. Uh, she, brothers will... Uh, would probably laugh if I started talking about her to you today, but that's because they hear me talking about her all the time. She has this idea that um, in the modern world, since the Industrial Revolution especially, uh, there has been an increased emphasis on what she calls elaborated code. And what she means by this is a way we talk to each other that's very detailed, that's about sharing how I feel about a situation, how things appear to me, uh, because I assume that you don't know. And I assume that we don't share necessarily a common set of standards for judging what's right and wrong. So I just explain myself. And we all get a chance to explain ourselves and you know, argue about things. She contrasts this with what's a more traditional mode of expression in, in relationships, which she calls restricted code, which sounds bad because restrictions we don't like. But um, as I tell the brothers, I grew up in a fairly traditional family with restricted codes. So, for example, my mother could say to me things like this, boys don't hit girls. Okay? She's not telling me how she feels. 
She's giving me a, a very condensed worldview. Boys act one way, girls act another way. Boys are to treat girls with a certain kind of respect. You can, she doesn't say boys don't hit boys. <laughs> it's not that you don't hit, it's that you don't hit girls, right? So if you get in a fight at school with a boy, well, that's okay. All right. Uh, but, uh, but if I hit my sister, uh-uh. And if she hits me, she never got in trouble for that. If she, if she uses her fingernails and claws my hands or whatever, I can't hit back. And the other thing is, uh, you're the oldest, I expect more from you. Right? So this is what's called restricted code. What we're sharing, in, uh, the kind of information we're sharing when we use language like this, is not how, how do I feel about the situation? What do I think needs to be done here? By saying very short, sort of formulaic things, we're conveying a whole worldview. What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? What does it mean to have sisters? What does it mean to have parents? You know, My mother doesn't say, how would you feel if you were your sister and, and when I was your age and my brothers treated me that way, I would feel really sad. And, no, she just says, you act differently because, because you're a boy and you're the oldest. Uh, she's communicating a whole worldview what do parents get to say? What, what are, how are children supposed to approach their parents? Right? Um, St. Benedict is full of restricted code. So just by saying, Father, to the abbot, I'm communicating a whole worldview of fatherhood, of God the Father, of uh, what it means to be a son, what it means to show respect, uh, what it means to be part of a family. I am invoking all of these things simply by calling one of the monks my father. Or by calling a monk brother, uh, the same kind of thing. What happened in the, in the 1960s, 70s, was there was a movement away from this, and we dropped the titles. And uh, I found it funny. Uh, I, when I was in South Carolina last weekend giving this talk, uh, I was with a very traditional sort of priest and a very beautiful liturgy and so on. But he sent me an email thanking me. He called me Peter. <laughs> I'm not used to being addressed as Peter. Uh, when I went and visited one of the brothers' families a few years ago, I was introduced as Father Peter. And uh, one of the monk's brothers shook my hand and said, Hey, Pete! <laughs> uh, we have another friend who um, always addresses everybody. Uh, he's, been a, he's in the neighborhood here and he's been a friend for many, many years. Really good guy. But he always addresses everybody by shortened nicknames, you know. And once Cardinal George was visiting, and I was bringing the Cardinal and his chauffeur out to the car, and this fellow was walking by, and he said, Hey, uh, hey, hey, and he's trying to think, what do I call him? I can't call him Frank, you know. Like, but but uh, I, I'm not used to saying things like, Cardinal George, you're like, you know, your eminence, <laughs> right? That, that's, the, that's what we normally call somebody who's a cardinal of the church. But why do we do that? By saying your eminence, uh, we invoke a whole worldview, and, and we shorten the amount of effort we have to put into it. If we have to kind of think, how can I sort of personally make this connection? Uh, it's, it's a lot of effort, and um, it, it tends to dissolve the whole worldview, and it makes everything sort of secularized, you know, if I can use that sort of wording. Um, nothing is special anymore again. Everything is sort of negotiable. I don't have to accept things as a gift. Uh, everything is sort of what I make of it. Um, again, to, to, say, to call someone your eminence is to receive him as given to me by God for a specific role in my life. Uh, he's the cardinal, I'm not. He has certain, uh, our relationship is defined by that, you know. Um, I have to remember this because uh, Archbishop Supic is not a cardinal yet, and so he's, he's your excellency or archbishop, he's not cardinal or your eminence. Uh, but this, again, to say your eminence invokes a whole idea of what a cardinal is, you know, what is a cardinal? And who gets to be, you know, what is my role? How do I... What's my place in the church vis-a-vis -vis these, these other persons? So using these titles is actually very helpful in understanding how God is communicating through the whole structure of the community. He's giving my, me my place um, by these titles that we use, by the scripted, ritualized kinds of behaviors that Benedict is giving us. He's teaching us how to be ourselves, teaching us how to accept the role that God has given us in the community. 
And I think that is the key thing uh, that I really want to emphasize um, about this idea. Uh, the other danger of a meritocracy is I'm never satisfied with who I am. Uh, and I don't receive who I am from God. I'm always trying to create myself by striving to be other than I am at this moment, by trying to uh, take for myself more responsibilities, more uh, merit in, in the community. Uh, there's, this, there's a danger that that becomes something where I no longer am a grateful recipient of my life from God, but I'm always grasping after more. Okay? And this is, in some ways, the primordial sin, right? Because Adam and Eve, instead of receiving their food from God, grasped after something that had been forbidden them because they weren't ready for it yet. And instead of saying, okay, well, God knows best, I'll simply be, we'll be who we are for now. Uh, we start thinking, yeah, well, the serpent says God's hiding something from us. You know, I, 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 think, I think we should just take this. <laughs> um, this is the danger of the master's arrangement, is that uh, I become self-generated in some way. And this is not the, the Christian model. Even you know, the Son of God himself, who is our, our model as a son, as a, as a child, uh, is eternally begotten, generated of the Father. The Son receives his life from the Father. He doesn't take it for himself. We receive our lives from God. In fact, we can receive our lives at every moment from God. But this requires us to be accepting of our circumstances to a certain extent. And um, not competing with one another to sort of take somebody else's role, wanting to overtake somebody in the life. Um, so th this is a hard thing for us, um, and I would be interested to get your questions and comments. Let me just say two or three more quick things about the chapter on community rank, and I'm very interested to hear what you make of all this. I've already mentioned the mutuality of Benedict's rule, which is very different from the master. The master, as I say, the, the relationship of the brothers horizontally is really not mentioned. Uh, their relationship to the abbot is stressed. And what are they doing? They're trying to get his attention to show that they're, they're better <laughs> and more virtuous than their brothers. Whereas for St. Benedict, this idea of community rank is all about how I relate to the others in the community in a peaceful way where our expectations are very clear. Uh, the other thing about the other change that Benedict makes, I've also alluded to, but it's worth saying again, uh, in the, the master's monastery, the top rank goes to the abbot. In Benedict's monastery, the top rank goes to Christ, the judge. <laughs> uh, the abbot, of course, is responsible for being Christ for the community. But he has to answer to Christ. He does not get to make decisions on his own. Um, he has to pray over them very, very carefully. Uh, even so, it's important to, to remember when I say this, that the brothers still treat the abbot as Christ. And in fact, there's this very strong language in, in verse 13. The abbot, because we believe that he holds the place of Christ, is to be called Lord and abbot. Not for any claim of his own, not because he merits it, uh, but out of honor and love for Christ. So actually, when, say, brothers refer to me as Father Prior... The, the intention is that they do so in order to honor Christ and not to honor me. Uh, this is not, again, always so easy to grasp, um, but it's, that's Benedict's meaning for this. And then uh, the abbot, again, must reflect on this and in his behavior show himself worthy of such honor. Okay, so the, the abbot is not to lord it over the brothers because they have to refer to him as abbot. Uh, but he actually has to think about what an abbot, you know, how one actually models Christ for the community. Um, so, the, so the brothers uh, are subordinated to the abbot, uh, but this is so that there's an incarnational representation of Christ in the community, and, and not just for the sake of order, but there, there is a sacred uh, theological meaning and depth to this relationship. 
Um, the last thing I will say is that the abbot must not command anything unjust. Uh, that's what he says in verse 2. And uh, don't answer this question now, but because I want to hear the questions you have about everything I've said so far. But this raises the question of uh, what exactly do we mean by justice? <laughs> What's just in a monastery? And do we even know, do we even agree on what is justice? Uh, so I say, don't answer that question yet. <laughs> but I would be interested in the 10 or 15 minutes we have left to find out if you have observations, more of your own experiences that corroborate or go against what I've said, suspicions about what I've said, uh, anything you'd like to raise. Yes. Stan. Uh, uh-huh. Yes, yeah. purpose. Can I, uh, if I could pick up on that for a moment, is, it, is there something else you want to add to that? No. Because uh, this idea of purpose is really, really important. And again, Brother Gabriel is going to chuckle when I say this, because uh, uh, how do we know, you know, what, what is God asking me to do day to day? It makes all the difference if I know what my goal is. You know, my, my goal today is to, if I'm the cook, it's to, to put a meal on the table. That's my purpose, you know. Having special places within the community gives each brother a role and a purpose within the community that, that only he can fulfill. And uh, this not only clarifies and gives peace to the life, but it gives deep meaning to, to the, the decisions that the brother has to make. In a world where you can create your own purpose for yourself, uh, a few people will be lucky and you know, have everything they want. But I think for most of us, this is a recipe eventually for frustration because we're never quite sure what criteria to use for making decisions. Well, I could, um, it's, uh, you know, um, what is it, a love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, you know. Uh, I will wear my trousers rolled. Do I dare to eat a peach, you know. What, what criteria are there in the modern world for anybody to do anything? And the, the, the end of this poem, if you're familiar with it, is T.S. Eliot. Uh, is despair, <laughs> is drowning in, in a sea of, of chaos again because there are no criteria for making decisions. When I have a purpose, uh, everything I do is structured now. All my decisions say, and our purpose in the monastery is to achieve the kingdom of God within this, this very particular kind of structure. So thank you for bringing that up. It's interesting, the, um, the, the master has that. He has everybody gets to take a turn sitting next to the, the abbot. Um, I could see that actually doing, being okay. Um, and actually, St. Benedict changes that slightly. The abbot gets to choose who sits with him at meals. Um, always leaving some seniors with the younger brothers <laughs> for the sake of order and discipline. Um, I think the problem the master runs into again is this idea of competing for the abbot's attention. That, so taking turns isn't, there. actually, we take turns doing a lot of things, don't we? Reading at table, serving at table, reading at vigils. We have charts, you know, yeah. going to the monastery, you have these charts of who's reading this week, who's cantering. And uh, so, so that, that, that is a part of Benedictine life. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Susan. I was going to say that um, Benedict must have really 
And the authority structure is actually very weak because a brother could rise up and take the abbot down and become abbot. The correlate to this is a high suspicion of the world outside. The master has a very low opinion of people outside the monastery. St. Benedict, by structuring things in a much more uh, involved kind of network in his monastery, where everything is tied together at a very deep level, uh, Mary Douglas would call this high grid, strong group. So a grid of lots of symbols with meanings that touch every other part. So again, if you say Abbot so-and-so to someone, the whole structure resonates. Everything is reinforced by that. Um, among the advantages to this is a sacramental worldview is more possible under these circumstances because everything has a purpose and everything reflects everything else. So you can have a really strongly structured symbol like the Eucharist that means everything, <laughs> you know? Um, the other thing about this is that the exterior of the community, there's much more openness because the community is not always threatened. It's not always threatened with falling apart. So it can have a very peaceful kind of coexistence with the outside. Um, this is one of the concerns I have. Um, those of you who have heard of Rod Dreyer, he and I, he's a journalist, um, and he and I have been in contact with each other. He's working on a book on what he calls the Benedict Option, where he says, you know, Christians today have to realize that the world is not your friend, and we have to create these little intentional communities. I don't completely disagree with him, but I think there's a danger here, that, that if, if we don't have the kind of structure that St. Benedict would have us institute, which where, where each person in a community has his or her own special place, and that relationships are scripted and easy, taken for granted, again, order, I think. Order means you can relax, because you, you can count on things. It's okay. Uh, if we don't have those kinds of communities, uh, we're going to be unnecessarily adversarial to a world that needs evangelization. We, we need to be able to approach the world with a joyful sense of God's love, not of a fearful sense of our own survival. <laughs> you know, and, and the danger is that if we don't set up the kinds of communities that can do this, we actually make our lives harder and, and our message less appealing to the people who need to hear it. Uh, so we'll see how his book goes. I've already suggested he read Mary Douglas, and he has. <laughs> so, so hopefully that will inform what he's writing. Um, don't 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 put this on the podcast. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want Mr. Dreyer to hear. Uh, I, I've been honest with him about my. Is this natural symbols? Natural symbols. Yes, that's. I yeah. Her most famous book is Purity and Danger, which is an awesome book. Uh, but I think the profounder book is Natural Symbols. Um, uh, she she's another Catholic. She just died maybe six years ago. Um, I definitely need to do a, an online meeting on Mary Douglas. She is really very interesting. Um, she wrote commentaries on Leviticus and Numbers. <laughs> Leviticus, uh, she's very, very influential in Bible studies because she, her idea of how symbols work with each other and how communities use symbols help people to have a more positive understanding of all the laws of Leviticus instead of it being some kind of restrictive book of lots of rules. She was able to show, no, it's actually something that is life-giving because everything has meaning. You know, shellfish have deep, serious meaning for life <laughs> if, if you're a Jew. And uh, this is not something uh, to ridicule and say, oh, those Jews, they have all these laws. It's to say, what a beautiful view of the world because everything was created by God and has its place. Um, and then we, we take this over into our liturgy. The liturgy is all about making distinctions and everything has its place. Uh, we have special incense for Lent. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, we have a different incense today. Uh, we have different vestments. Different di candles are lit at different times. Different icons are put out. Everything has its place. And because of this, everything refers back to everything else. <laughs> there's, there's no sort of welter of meaninglessness. Uh, it, it looks fussy. People who are trying to understand the liturgy for the first time are tempted to say, oh, why don't you just throw it all out and say some Hail Marys and just pray? <laughs> but 
this, the danger of this, again, is that um, we end up uh, fomenting competition between different people of different ideas. Uh, we, we have to rethink the liturgy every time we get together. We can't just relax. We have to think, oh, well, what are we going to do this time? Where are we going to put the statues? We're going to do, have, you know, this is my brothers when they were in seminary. Where are we going to have mass today? What are we going to use for the altar? We're going to have statues or no statues. Are we going to vest or not? Are we going to use bread or are we going to use... Like, uh, nothing has any intrinsic meaning after a while because everything's manipulable. By whom? By the powerful. Right? By those who can, who can make their opinions be forced on others. You know? So that's another thing about order. As I said, the, the hidden value of order is that it gives the powerless a place and a, a place at the table. And... They're, they're not subjected to the whims of the powerful. Right. All right, well, we should, um, we should wrap up here. Uh, thank you all very much. And uh, again, the next online meeting will be this Saturday at 2 o'clock. And then our next monthly meeting will be the second Sunday of April. And Father Brendan will be talking about one of the church fathers. All right, our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth.